In our final time tonight, I, I really want to share some things for you um, uh, from the book of Acts. So we've been looking in the Gospels for the first two sessions. The first one, last night we looked at a story of Jesus and how he uh, leads us into disorienting places, um, or he can do, but that actually it is he who has uh, come to us across the lake. And then this morning we talked about what it means to have a vision, a different vision of the good life that actually orients the way we live uh, in our culture today. And today, tonight what I want to do is I want us to move forward to the book of Acts, and I want to look at a, a very incidental little story there and talk a little bit about how the Spirit of this Lord Jesus now leads us and guides us uh, in mission, in mission. So our passage tonight is from uh, Acts chapter 16. So this is right at the end of the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts, you might realise, is, is actually part two of the Gospel of Luke. You may not have realised that. Luke, uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the telling of the Lord Jesus, which is actually the longest of them, actually flows on into Acts. It's part two. So Jesus ascends to heaven, but the mission, the people go out, the apostles go out on mission, and Paul is converted, and he goes out to take the Gospel to the Gentiles, and he's off on one of these missionary journeys, living out this radical new vision of what it means to be alive and proclaiming it everywhere, all the way around different parts. And, uh, and we come to chapter 16 and and verse 6 to 10. And I want to read this to you, and I think it'll be on the screen as well. And it seems like a really incidental little moment, but I actually think it tells us, it has within it a few insights, a few keys that we can get um, and glean in order to help us as disciples to live a life um, of mission uh, and faithfulness to Jesus. So this is Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10. And it reads like this, it says, they, now they is Paul and some companions, Uh, probably maybe uh, Luke with him. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Blithnia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision And there stood a man of Macedonia, pleading with him and saying, Come to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Now, this is a really incidental little few verses. In a sense, it kind of feels like a bit of a geography lesson. It mentions a whole bunch of cities that we may not have heard of before. They're all in different little parts of, of the Middle East and Northern Europe there. But also, it's, it's just a description. It says, we basically tried to go here, there, and everywhere. And, uh, and then Paul had a dream, and so we went that way. But actually, I think it's really fascinating. There's some things in here that give us an insight into the kind of life they were living on mission. The kind of life they were living as disciples out on mission with Jesus. There's some principles I think we can observe. And I want to list like four or five for you tonight and then uh, observe something at the end and then, and then we're all done. But the first one is this. I listen to this little story, and he's talking about the moving from here, there, and everywhere, and I observe this principle. These disciples have a posture of expecting and following the guidance of the Holy Spirit in their mission. That's just kind of so obvious in the story. In fact, it's right there all the way through the book of Acts that you can forget about, that that you can forget to see it. 
They have a posture of expecting the Holy Spirit to guide their life. They're not just charging through life doing whatever they want. And they're not just following the herd, doing what other people are doing. They're expecting the Spirit of Jesus to be guiding their choices and where they go. So the book of Acts, we see people on mission and it combines this extraordinary combination of strategic planning in their mission and sensitivity to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So like they have no plans, but they're out moving around, going from town to town, proclaiming the gospel and they've got a plan, but then every now and then the Spirit, they're listening to the Spirit who guides them to go in a different direction. Notice it says things like, we went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, then it says being forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's kind of strange because Asia's got a lot of people. Why wouldn't the Spirit want them to go there? And then it said, we came opposite Mysia and attempted to go into Blithnia, but the Spirit did not allow them, and then the Spirit finally guides them through a dream. And so I just want to say this right from the outset, apparently being on mission as a disciple of Jesus means being sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It means actually beginning a day by saying, God, look, I know what I'm going to do today. It doesn't mean you don't have a plan. Is that mine? No. It doesn't mean you don't have a plan. It means that you know what you're going to do and you're going to plan to live a life that follows Jesus and to do certain things, but you're also open. You're willing to pray on the way to uni, on the way to school, on the way to work, wherever, and actually say, God, today I want to be sensitive for you to guide me into a conversation that's a missional conversation. I want you to be sensitive to see where, where, what should I do. Maybe I need to change my plans. Maybe I need to go over here. Maybe you need to make some decision to start the day and say, today I want to know, is this a person I should tell about Jesus? Or is this a person I should just shut up and be a listening, loving person to? Do you know what I mean? As a default, it just seems to be right there that they're living a life that is oriented by the sensitivity to the guidance uh, of, of Jesus' spirit. So that's a bit of an obvious one. But number two, we see from this little episode that disciples are actually, who are sensitive to the Spirit, are able to hear when the Spirit is saying no to what seems like an obvious path. Now, this is the, the bit that I want you to get. This is, when you, this is, you've got to know a little bit of geography to get this from the story. So they're going down through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, right? Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. So if you, if you look at this on a map, they're actually walking down along a coastline, basically. And Asia is over here, and the Spirit, for some reason, says, don't go to Asia. So already it's like, there's lots of Asians, why don't we go? But the Spirit says no. And they're like, okay, it's surprising, but okay. But they're going down here, and it's almost like the spirits say, you know, where are we supposed to be going? But they know, at the very least, all God is saying to them at this point is what they shouldn't do. Now, it would feel obvious to go and do that, but he says, no, no, someone else at another time. And this is really important because unless, uh, drawing a little bit on this morning, unless you're sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can very naturally just follow the Uh, the herd of what feels obvious and never hear the no of God and the no from God can be incredibly helpful for us. Let me give you an example. You've got a job and you're working in your job and in your job you're working with a bunch of people and you're enjoying working with those people. 
And because you're a radical disciple of Jesus, you're always looking to see how you can um, demonstrate the love of Jesus to the people that you work with and, and even sometimes tell them about the love of Jesus. But you know, because this is Australia, that you don't get around to telling people about the love of Jesus kind of until they trust you, which means that you've got to kind of demonstrate it. You've got to walk your talk first. So you build up relationships. You're a loving person. You're a listening person at work. And so you're building this relationship with this group of people and you're praying and you're saying, God, how can I love these people? How can I demonstrate the kingdom of them to them? How can, how can I share the gospel with them on occasion? And so over time, you build up a connection with them and you have some interesting conversations with them. And, and it's a wonderful place that you are incarnating and, and being God's disciple. Then you get offered a promotion. Boss comes to you and says, hey, I've got really fantastic news. You've been doing such a good job working amongst, you know, we're going to give you a promotion. You're going to go over here and you're going to be in an office by yourself. And you're going to be kind of, you know what I mean, a manager over systems and you won't have to walk with those guys anymore. You're actually going to have a bit of a pay rise and your own office and you're going to work over here. Now, if you don't, if you're not sensitive to this idea in mission, then immediately all you're going to assume in life is, wow, what a blessing from God. I got a promotion. There we go. God promotes people who, you know, faithful with little things, and now I'm going to be faithful with big things. That's great. I got a pay rise. What's well, blessing? I'm able to tithe a little bit more at church. You know what I mean? I'm able to give. I'm able to spend. This is God's blessing on my life. How wonderful. I've been given more authority. I'm really moving up in the world. God's blessing is upon me. It's going to feel like the, the only trouble is that that response, there's actually zero difference between that response and the response of any person who doesn't believe in Jesus or isn't following. You know what I mean? A promotion's a promotion. Like, duh, you take it. It's more money. It's more responsibility. We're moving up in the world. Here we go. But it could be that God has a vision for you in that workplace that goes even beyond you earning just a little bit more money. What if he's put you in that place and that what you're building and doing and serving and relating with those guys is even more precious and wonderful than you getting your own office? What if it is? You actually go, you know what? This isn't just about a job for me. This isn't just about money for me. This is about something grander. This is about the kingdom of God in that place. Why would I want to be removed from the place where I'm most effective for the kingdom of God and be putting an office on a computer by myself and be given more money? Why would I be isolated from the very mission field that God has put me there to relate to? Do you get what I'm saying? It, it could be that God may actually say no to something that looks amazing so that you can do something that's more amazing in the long term in the eyes of the kingdom of God. Now, it may be that. It may not be that. It may be that you want to go over here. It, it doesn't. I mean, I'm not trying to build a law around it. What I'm trying to say is, if you're not listening on the Holy Spirit, you're going to miss it. Does that make sense? You're going to miss what could be an, a no to an obvious path. And I would simply say that radical disciples, people who are following Jesus and living their life on mission, aren't just going with what feels obvious. It seemed obvious. Why wouldn't we go to Asia? No, no, no. No, no, no. I've got something else for you to do. And you're going to miss it unless you're being guided by the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Again, it's not all. It doesn't mean you don't do anything without God. It means you have a plan, but that you're sensitive to God's guidance. Observation number three from this little story here. The disciples are guided by the Spirit of God through a vision of pleading need. Look, look at this story again. It says, they, it's, it does that whole thing where they don't go to Blithynia because the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. They went past Mysia. They went down to Troas. And as I said, geographically, it's like they're being stuck down this peninsula. The ocean's on one side. Asia's on the other side. And it's like, we keep going down here. And God's saying, no, no, no. And then it says, during, excuse me, during the night, Paul had a vision. And in his vision, there stood a man of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is like totally in the opposite direction across the ocean over there. It's not an obvious place at all. They're going down here. Asia's on this side of the ocean. They're running out of land. And then suddenly God gives them a vision of a man from Macedonia, which is back over near Greece. A Macedonian man pleading with them and saying, come to Macedonia and help us. They're guided by God through a vision of pleading need. A Macedonian man saying, Help! You know, look, I I grew up in the church. And the church that I grew up in, we had a lot of visions. People were always getting up and giving us a vision. This is the vision. This is what God wants us to do. In fact, often it was sort of like a prophetic vision. Like today, I believe I'm getting this picture and it could be for someone here. You know, prophetic vision. They're very powerful, very effective, but they always seem to fall into one of two categories. There was kind of like the give me a hug vision and the isn't this amazing vision. Now, the give me a hug vision kind of goes like this. It would be in a worship service and someone would say, I have a vision. God has given me a vision today. And, and this vision is to say that God just wants to tell you that, that he loves you. He wants to, to, you know, it's kind of like he wants to give you a hug. This vision always had lots of sheep in it. You know what I mean? I see sheep and, you know what I mean? And waterfalls and God is there and he's your shepherd and he loves you. And it was kind of like a vision that was like, and when you grow up in the church, you kind of hear the same things again and again sometimes. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, Oh yeah, here we go. This is the God wants to give you a hug vision again. I don't know. Does anyone relate to this? You've grown up in the church. Am I being too cynical? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I see that hand. So, <laughs> so this is kind of like, yeah, I want to get it. Now, now, there's nothing wrong with that vision. That's a wonderful vision. The Psalms are full of that vision. You know what I mean? Uh, the, 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 the Lord is my shepherd. I shall know what God does want to bring. And it's probably incredibly powerful and wonderful for someone who's grieving and hurting. You know what I mean? God does love you and he's with you. But we got lots and lots of that kind of vision. And that's great. That's wonderful. The other kind of vision that we got lots of was the kind of everything is going to be amazing vision. And the everything is going to be amazing vision is always a vision about what's going to happen in the near future if we do the right thing, Right? And it's always a vision of there are going to be hundreds of people coming into our church. You know, we're going to build an amazing church or we're going to have an amazing time. It's, now, that's, it's always about how amazing things we're going to be. We're going to build, um, you know what I mean? I'm gonna, we're going to have a jet for the church and we're going to fly around the world. And Do, do you know what I mean? We're going to have, there's always things going to be amazing. Now, now, that's okay. I mean, that's great because 
everything is amazing, visions are important. In fact, the book of Revelation is an everything is amazing vision. It's a vision of the end of time, the reconciliation, renewal of all things. It's amazing because, you know, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's at the end, he wins, he's sovereign, and everyone bows down to him. So that's perfectly legitimate to have that. We kind of got a lot of them, you know what I mean? Like everything is amazing. And after a while you grow up and it's like, everything's not as amazing as those visions, but that's all right. Some things were amazing. We had amazing visions. But it was kind of like, my point is not that they're bad, those visions, but we only ever kind of got those two kinds of visions. God wants to give you a hug. Everything is going to be amazing. Paul doesn't get one of those visions here. He gets a different vision. He gets a vision we didn't hear lots of in my church, and it's a vision of pleading need. It's a vision where God directs his life and what he's doing in his mission by giving him a vision of a specific man in a specific community in, mass, in a really un, like a surprising place, unexpected place. And it's a man saying, Help! Friends, God speaks to your life sometimes when he gives you a vision of pleading need. You're wondering what you want to do with your life? What does God want you to do with your life? Ask him to give you a vision of pleading need. Don't just ask for a vision that gives you a hug and says everything's going to be amazing or gives you an amazing vision of what's up ahead, but actually come back a little bit and say, God, give me a vision of pleading need. Where can I help? Where do you want me to serve? Where can I be most effective, not just most successful? God will speak to you through a vision of pleading need. He can do that. He will guide you by his spirit and he will break your heart for somewhere. Maybe it's for your street right now where you live. Maybe it's for another street across town, another suburb. Maybe it's for a country overseas. But ask God to break your heart, to give you a heart burst, an ache, a vision of need that you long to go and join in with. Not just a vision of the good life, but a vision of pleading need. And so you're going to miss that. You're going to miss that vision if you don't be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Point number four. Disciples don't look away. Disciples, they, in this story, we see they don't they don't look away. I'll tell you a story. I'm, I'm a bit of a World War II buff. I really am fascinated by the history of, of World War II, and particularly Germany and, and the Nazi party and so forth. I find it fascinating, partly because my father spent some time uh, there during the war. He's much, much older, my father. He's passed away now, but he was there during the war. In, and so I'm very fascinated through family connections, where he was and and, and how that unfolded. So I've read a lot of biographies about different figures in, in the, the Second World War, and I've become quite fascinated by a man called uh, Albert Speer. You may or may not have heard of Albert Speer. He was, you heard of Adolf Hitler, I'm sure. And he had around him like a band of sort of senior leader people, and um, Albert Speer was one of these. In fact, he was a bit of a favorite of Hitler because um, he was an architect. And what he would do is that he would 
give these grand plans. He would draw them and build models of these grand plans of what Berlin was going to look like when they had conquered all of Europe. And they were going to build this amazing capital city. And so he built these incredible plans with this big stadium and all, all sorts of things. And so Hitler kind of liked that idea. Hey, look, look at the world we're going to build. You know, it's like they love playing with Lego together or something. But Speer also, during the war, he, he also had some other responsibilities. He, he was given a job as head of munitions, which means his job was to oversee the factories that were building bullets and bombs and things like that for, for the army. Um, he's a fascinating person, though, because he survives the war, right? So the war comes to an end, and Hitler commits suicide, and many other people do, but Speer is a arrested and he's put on trial at this very famous trial that was held just after the war where a whole lot of the senior officers in the Nazi party were were put on trial for the crimes they could potentially committed during the war and um, it was called the Nuremberg trials very famous and they were tried with evidence and witnesses for their specific crimes and um, there were about 20 or so of them and several of them before the the, the verdict came down, committed suicide in their cells, but Speer didn't. Speer got there on the stand and he said, I'm so very sorry, uh, I, I did this and I did this, but all the way through, he, the questions were put to him about the death camps, the concentration camps and the places where we know up to several million Jews and also others and so forth were exterminated and, and burnt in the uh, killed in the gas chambers and then and then burnt and and they're putting to him saying how how could you and he says I had no knowledge of any of that. In the end, he's sentenced because of a few things that have happened to twenty years jail. So after the war, he goes to jail for twenty years, and then he's released. So he's released in kind of the nineteen sixties, and he comes out of jail and he writes a book called Inside the Third Reich, Inside the Nazi Party, basically. And he basically writes up everything he knew. And it's fascinating, because the world is really fascinated, not just me, but others, about the Nazi Party. You can't turn on SBS without some other documentary, you know what I mean, about Hitler and everyone going on. It's really fascinating to know what happened in there. And, and Speer's book becomes a bestseller, and he travels around the world, and he's going on talk shows, and he's being interviewed, and he becomes a bit of a celebrity, because it's like, here was a guy that was right there. He knew Hitler. He was a close man. And and so again, it's fascinating to hear him talking what it, and explaining what it was like. But again and again, the question is put to him. How could you allow the gas chambers to happen? Six million people. How could you, how could you possibly live with yourself knowing that this was going on? And again and again and again, he says, I did not know. I didn't know it was happening. I was here running my factories and, and building things. I didn't know that others were over here with the concentration camps. And they say, you must have known. And serious historical scholars now, you know, it's been 20 years of looking over everything that happened. They're saying, but you were at this meeting here. And we know that it was discussed at this meeting. You were there. And he says, no, I left before that happened. I left at lunchtime at that meeting. I was not there. They're saying, but you must have known. Yes, you weren't immediately overseeing it, but you must have known. You were in the inner circle. You were right there. The, the, you're, they're responsible. Six million people. And he says, I didn't know it was happening. I didn't know. There was one lady who wrote, uh, it was very persistent on this, and she wrote a biography of Albert Speer, and she interviewed him many, many times. And she persisted with him. She said to him, you must have known. And there's this very famous interview she has, and she writes it up right at the end of her last biography, and she says to him, you must have known. 
And he said, I did not know, I did not see what was happening. And she said, but you must have seen the slaughter, the killing. You must have seen. And he says, I did not see, I looked away. She says, aha, you looked away. You can't look away from something that you do not know is happening. You looked away. If you didn't know, then you just look. But to look away means that you know there is something to look away from. And he looks at her and he says, there will be no more interviews. And that's the last interview he ever gives. She got him. I didn't know, I didn't know because I looked away. He did know. But he looked away. And so the real tough question, I guess, for us in our generation and for you and for me, is what are you looking away from? What are you looking away from? What do you just change the channel from? Because it's too hard. God gives you a vision of pleading need, but it's just easier to look away. I don't want to look. I don't want to know. It gets easier in our culture to keep looking away because there are so many entertaining things to look at. A refugee, no, no, I'd just rather look away over here. Complexities with indigenous, I'd just rather look away over here. This person at work, well, I'd rather just, look, I didn't see. That's a pretty tough question. What are you looking away from? Paul has this vision of pleading need. And he immediately gets up and walks towards it. It says they immediately got up and went across there. Paul does this all the way through. In the end, towards the end, it says, he, he heads, he says, God is calling me to Rome. And they said, all his friends are saying, you go to Rome, you will be killed. He says, I've got to go to Rome. That's where God is, and he goes to Rome. He doesn't look away. See, disciples of Jesus don't look away. They look. They see what God is showing them. But it's okay because they are also convinced that God has gone ahead of them. This is important for us to get because otherwise we start to feel like we are being manipulated or we're being pushed or we're being alienated. But actually disciples are confident the Holy Spirit has actually gone ahead of them. This is important to know in mission. You are not taking God into your workplace or to your uni. You are following God there. See, God is well ahead of you. The Holy Spirit is well ahead of you. If God is calling you across the street, to, it's because God is already there calling. God is with the Macedonian man, prompting him to cry out for help. 
You don't have to look away because there is a sovereign God who is putting it in your face for a reason. You don't have to be scared that maybe God will not be with you because God is already well ahead of you. And my last one is this. Disciples always know the answer is the gospel. That Jesus Christ has died and risen again and indeed has been given all authority on heaven and earth. Jesus is king and our culture is not. Jesus is the king and Caesar is not. Jesus is the king and armies are not. Jesus is king and a comfortable, meaningless life is not. Jesus is king and whatever the pleading need is, is not. You see, friends, disciples live a life guided by the Holy Spirit, and He can give you a vision of something that will break and burst your heart, and you can look at it, and you can walk towards it. Many years ago, there was, um, well, many years ago, you, you'll probably remember this, and this is, this is 9-11. Um, there was a concert that happened after the, the destruction at the Twin Towers in America about a month later. In the Twin Towers in America, um, it was obviously a horrific act of terrorism. We've seen quite a few of them since as well. But it was a horrific act, a violent act, and one of the things that was most horrific was the amount of um, emergency services people that had rushed in to help people. You know, the firefighters who ran into the Twin Towers. And then the towers, I mean, just such a devastating. Imagine, I remember sitting up and I was watching um, TV and I put in the news and I remember sitting there and watching it happen and unfold live. And I was feeling traumatized watching it. Can you imagine what it was like to be in New York City at that particular time? But a month afterwards, there was a concert at Madison Square Garden in in New York. And it was a U2 concert. And U2 were coming to town and playing, and and they played their concert. And then as they got towards the end of their concert, um, a really marvelous and beautiful thing happened. Um, Everyone, as you imagine, is emotional, and everyone is just feeling frail and traumatized. And a whole bunch of firefighters um, came onto the stage. The firefighters, dozens of them, just streamed onto the stage as the band's playing their final song. And the whole auditorium just erupts, you know, in applause and honor and respect, joining in the grief and the honor for these guys and what they have lost in the bravery, sort of appreciating afresh, wow, the cost of this particular job. It's not a well-paid job. It's a job that you'd have to say after something like that, you'd feel like giving up walking away from, saying, this is just too out there. I don't want to do this anymore. Running into buildings? Are you serious? And then this particular guy, the song comes to an end, and one of the firefighters comes forward, and he grabs the microphone, and he says, um, uh, he says, my brother was in the towers last month. He was a firefighter, and he died in the towers. And everyone sort of honors him, and, and he's crying. And he says, and you can just imagine him coming out with something like, and we've had it (laughs) with firefighting. You know what I mean? This is not worth it for the money. It's not worth it for the risk. It's not worth it. But instead, he says something else. He says, New York, I just want to let you know that any time you call 911, we will be there 
we will come. And the place just erupts. You can actually watch this on YouTube. It's incredibly emotional. This guy who's lost his brother, who's in this job, and the devastation that's occurred, his entire response to it and that of his friends is, is not to walk away, but actually to, it steals within him now what his job is really all about. Anytime you call 911, we will be there, we will come. And you, and you can hear in him and go, this guy, isn't, it's not a job for him anymore. It, it's a vocation. It's a calling. He's looked it square in the face and it's like, this is personal now. This is what I'm called to do. This is my mission. And I hear something in that guy as I watch the YouTube clip and listen to an MP3 of it. And I'm like, this is just incredible. This guy has found something that he lives for. He's found his mission and his calling through this desperately horrific situation. And there's some element of that that I think is important for us to connect with as people who are disciples of Jesus. Because it is so easy to look at life as just a series of a job and, and entertainment. The good life. But there is a whole other way to live. And that is to view your life as a mission on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that means inviting God to give you a vision of pleading need and not looking away, but walking towards it. Maybe saying no to things that feel obvious because God has called you to it. And even now as I'm speaking, maybe by the Holy Spirit, He's giving you an image, a vision of what that is, who that is, where it is. It's one of the most powerful things when even in a day or for a lifetime, God gives you that vision. Who is your Macedonian man? Who is the person that God puts at the forefront of your heart? That vision who says, help. And you find your calling. It may be in the sporting life you have. It may be in the hobby life you have. It may be in the job you have. May, I don't know what it is. Maybe it is about selling everything you have and going onto the mission field. Maybe it is about accepting a call into ordained ministry in the life of the church. But probably not. For the vast majority, it's something else. And it's probably deeply rooted and tied within your passions. and What you want to do. What God has been shaping you for to do. He will guide you through a vision of pleading need. Who is your Macedonian man? Who is the one that you would see in a vision who cries help, that you would dare to continue to look at and dare to walk towards? A final point. There's a word that we use often in the, in the life of the church and in our worship and at different times, and it's a word that I've always known, but I never really knew the meaning of. It's a word, Hosanna. Hosanna. Now, Hosanna, I always thought was just sort of a bit like hallelujah, you know, praise the Lord. It kind of is one of those things I've always said, and I wasn't really sure that it had a specific meaning, but it actually does. Hosanna is a Hebrew word, and it actually means help. Help. But it's, it's a very nuanced understanding of help. It's not just, you know, 
help. Because we hear the language in the Psalms all the time, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we're not going, help, it's actually a help that is a help, ah, and there is my helper. So you just imagine that you're at the beach and and someone, you know, you've got a lifeguard and you're stuck out in the water and you're getting caught in the rip and you're going down and you're crying out, help! That's not Hosanna, that's just help. (laughs) But then in the midst of flailing around, you see the lifeguard and he sees you and you make a connection and he gets up and starts running towards you and you know he's coming and you go, help! That's Hosanna. Help, and there is my helper. There he comes. Friends, Hosanna in the highest. This is what it means. This is what our mission is. Our mission is to look, to have the vision of the pleading need of the person, whoever it might be, wherever they might be, that God gives you and your heart bursts and you look. And they're crying out help. Your Macedonian man is crying out help. And your job, your job, as they look at you, as you lock eyes, and as you determine whatever the cost to head towards them and to love them and to listen and to live and to eat and to be with them and to proclaim with you, they see you coming and behind you, they see Almighty God who is leading you towards them and you turn their help into a Hosanna. Hosanna, you're coming. Hosanna, God has answered our prayer. That's our mission. To turn people's help, that vision of help, into a Hosanna. Friends, you will not be the whole answer, but God is the whole answer. He wants you to be part of the answer. Where is it? Who is your Macedonian man? Whose help is God calling you to turn into a Hosanna? The answer to the vocation of your life is found somewhere in there. God will give you that vision. He'll give you lots of them. He'll give you a vision in the day. Who is it? Who is it today, God? He'll give you a vision in a month. Who is it this year? Who is it, God, that I'm reaching out to? Who is it? Give me a vision of someone. And he can give it you for your whole lifetime. Where is it, God? Where are you calling us? Who is those? It made moving, downgrading from a house to a different suburb, going somewhere you would never have expected, learning a new language, moving to the outback with indigenous. I don't know what it could mean, but friends, do something other than just get that little office on your own. Do something. Give your life over to Jesus Christ. He will give you a vision of someone with pleading need and you get to be part of his kingdom, his kingdom that is unfolding. His kingdom that is changing the world, redeeming the world, renewing the world and people within it. Be part of that. Man, that is way more fun. That is way more fun than a new kitchen. That is way more fun than a new home. That is way more fun than just traveling and backpacking on your own. That is amazing. Give your life to Jesus. He'll send you places to do things with people in moments and meals and conversations. He will help you to turn the help into a Hosanna. We will stand. Why don't you stand together now? Let's stand together. As the band comes, I want to say a prayer. Why don't you close your eyes? 
And I pray, Lord God, that you would move by your Holy Spirit into the hearts of every person here. That where their gifts and the shape that you've got them and prepared them, that you would match that. You would match it even unexpectedly and surprisingly with a vision of pleading need. Who is their Macedonian man? Give them clarity on that now, I pray. Lord God, that we might be not just the big hero with the answer, but that we might be someone who serves alongside you, who is able to participate in what you are going to do in that person, that village, that street, that town, that culture, that community, that country. Give us a vision of pleading need. But Lord, we might stand with that person and we may be able to look to heaven and we may be able to say, oh, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. For there is our helper. There he is the one who has come. There is the one who has saved me, who has saved us, who has brought us together. Lord Jesus, we say to you, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for sending someone to us. Lord, we want to be sent people. We want to be people who know to whom we have been called to go. Move within us. Minister within us. Give us courage even tonight to get a vision. Hosanna in the highest. Let's sing together.